This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Kelly Dietrich, founder of the National Democratic Training Committee, an organization dedicated to providing free campaign training, both online and in person, to any Democrat anywhere. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Jordan, thanks for having us. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, of course. So could you tell us about how your organization got started? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It was early 2016, and I had been a political consultant working on Democratic races all over the country for close to 18 years, doing a lot of fundraising, new campaign creation, and everywhere I would go, uh, whether it was North Carolina or Colorado, I would find these amazing local candidates who would come up and ask questions. How many votes do I need to win? How do I raise money? What, what's a message and how do I create my own? And these are very simple questions that people with experience in democratic politics can answer pretty, pretty easily. But it dawned on me uh, that as much as I wanted to help all of these candidates, I, I couldn't scale my time that way. And I started looking around and realizing that we, the Democratic Party, weren't providing any type of support or training or guidance on on any significant level to candidates and people who wanted to make a difference at the local level. If you want to run for city council, school board, if you want to make a difference in your community, you are essentially left on your own to reinvent the wheel on how to run a campaign. And that struck me as a niche we needed to fill. And so I took a look around uh, at what my uh, my wife was working with some e-learning stuff, and I saw that that scales. And I saw that we have the ability to help any Democrat willing to step up, willing to run, willing to step forward and say, hey, listen, I want to make a difference. We can provide them with the basic tools, the basic strategy, advice, and help them build a plan to win and we can do it for free. So I started that in 2016. We have since built an online campaign academy at traindemocrats.org that is free for any Democrat who is running for office, thinking about running for office, or even just wants to help people run for office. It has since grown and exploded. We did 46 trainings uh, on our own around the country this year. Uh, We want to do almost double that next year. Uh, And we just want to empower Democrats wherever they are. So I think that's such an important mission, especially because under Barack Obama, Democrats lost 27 state legislative chambers and 1,030 seats nationwide. Could you tell us about why this happened in the first place? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't think there's many, many reasons why it happened. And I don't think we can put blame on any one person, but definitely at the local level, Democrats took the eye, took their eye off the ball. Uh, we focused a lot on national issues, on U.S. House and U.S. Senate. And th- that's not bad, right? But like many things in life, 
This isn't either or, it needs to be and. So while we were looking away and focusing at the national level, the Republicans did a very good job of investing uh, resources, time, money into local races that allowed them to effectively capture these uh, 27 chambers and then redraw the maps. They control the rules now of what districts look like. And we've seen, you know, Wisconsin, North Carolina, all kinds of states finally challenging those rules. But Democrats need to fight back at the local level. Um, I think after 2016, uh, I don't know about you, Jordan, but I was I was angry. Uh, I, I was a lot of things I probably shouldn't share on a on a podcast. Uh, so insert, you know, your feelings here. But uh, my family was scared. We were angry. We were upset. We wanted to do something. And I think a lot of people really still feel that way. They're, they want to make a difference. They want to fight back. They don't want this to happen again. And the most important thing they can do, yes, we need to march. Yes, we need to rally. But we need to be out knocking on doors. We need to be talking and empowering other Democrats to run for office at, at every level. Could you tell us a little more about the gerrymandering scheme? How did the timing of the Republican waves under Obama enable them to rig the maps? So redistricting works every 10 years based upon the census. The number of people in a state allows the federal government to decide how many, uh, how many U.S. House seats each state gets. So Illinois, I believe, lost one. Other states lost more, some gained more. When you're in control of the state legislature, you get to draw the map. So you can draw the map uh, that will allow you to elect all Republicans or 50-50. You can make seats more competitive or less competitive. The Republicans' timing on capturing these legislative chambers allowed them to draw maps that more favorably disposed their districts to Republicans being elected. It's the reason why Pennsylvania had a, I don't know, two-thirds or three-quarter Republican majority delegation yet was a, you know, a predominantly blue state when it came to total overall votes. They could pack all the Democrats into one district uh, and, and allow the Republicans to hold many, many more. It is a lot harder to do that when all of the seats at the local level, the state level, or more of the seats at the local and state level are held by Democrats who are held by incumbents who can oppose this. And when, uh, hopefully, but it is, it is my belief that this November, the underreported, the real big story, maybe the underreported story, we'll, we'll see, is not that we take back the House. It's not that we hold the U.S. Senate or make gains there. It's the wave that is coming at the local level. It's at the state House level. It's at the city council, the school board, the county board level, because we've, we work in all 50 states. We are seeing an unprecedented number of candidates running. And that includes millennials, that includes women. And they're fired up. They want to make a change, but they need some direction. And we want to we want to help them win their races and we want to be able to do that for free. I'm glad you mentioned Pennsylvania because the big thing there is that the Supreme Court struck down their maps. Something I appreciate about your organization is that you do participate in judicial races. And as we've seen under Trump, though this has largely been the 
though it's been the federal judiciary, the courts are really important to blocking dangerous agendas. Could you tell us about the importance of judicial races and perhaps some of the decisions that demonstrate why having Democrats on the judiciary can be so meaningful? That's a great question, and you're exactly right. The judicial races are so important. And most judicial races are elected and a little bit different. Uh, at the federal level, they're appointed. Uh, local state judges usually have to run campaigns. And in many jurisdictions, the campaigns have specific requirements that do not allow the candidate to actually ask for money. So if I'm running for judge or Better yet, Jordan, you're running for judge. You may be out there talking to your supporters and there may be, you know, there's a woman who really, really supports you. You cannot ask her to write a check to your campaign. However, if you have a volunteer or a finance assistant, someone you've empowered on your campaign, they could ask her for a contribution. So that's a subtle distinction that you know, when we're talking about it, it doesn't seem that big, but it is very large because most campaigns that run do not have a lot of money. I know that when uh, people usually think about political campaigns, we get uh, you know, like the West Wing in our head or visions of black tie fundraisers and big, fancy, expensive galas and uh, that type of thing. That's that's not reality. The, the U.S. House races, the presidential and Senate races are a small slice of the rate, the actual elections and campaigns that take place around the country. 90% of the races in this country or more raise less than $2,500. These are people in their community who are trying to make a difference, usually by themselves, with their families. Maybe they've got one or two committed people. And the judge's race, you have a, the extra added challenge of not being able to do some, some of the most critical things yourself. And you have to find someone who's willing to donate or give their time to help you accomplish this incredibly important role of raising money. Um, and raising money is not bad. We, we talk a lot about this with campaigns. You're not doing anything illegal or immoral or unethical by raising money. What you're doing is allowing people to support you because they share your vision of change for their community. They want to help you. They may not be able to vote for you. They may not be able to give you their time, but they can write you a check. And to win a race, you need more votes than your opponent. To get votes, you have to communicate with voters. To communicate with voters takes money. That's money for volunteers to get out, whether it's whether it's the, the maps and software to tell them where to walk, the materials they're handing out. It can be paid communications. You can't run campaigns without financial funds. So that that reminds me of the recent congressional race in New York's 14th. Uh, you know, there's a lot to cover there, but what I'd really like to focus on is the organizing. I think what was really key to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's success was that she was organized on the ground with enthusiastic volunteers, people who are legitimately excited about her. Could you tell me about the power of grassroots organizing you've seen on the ground with local and state campaigns? Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with your assessment there uh, of the New York race. And she um, she had some real energy on the ground. She had it committed people, uh, committed people. That's what we try to teach and instill and motivate people to do on the local levels. You need to make those one-on-one -on -one connections. There's no better way 
to convince or persuade a voter than one-on-one -on -one individual called deep canvassing uh, a talk, right? You go to their door, you meet them at the train station. If you can get them on the phone, that's great, but really in-person is the most effective way. And the better and more often you can do that, the more likely you are to succeed. But to do that and do that well, it can't just be the candidate. You can't win most races on your own. It is a whole lot easier to build a, a group of supporters, of volunteers, empower and train them to help spread that message, to help them convince people for you. And the better you can do that, the more effective you be, the more likely you'll be able to win. Uh, and that's certainly one of the keys to winning an election. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there, so if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So you mentioned gerrymandering, and I think that also connects to voting rights. Ever since the 2013 Supreme Court decision dismantling the Voting Rights Act, we've seen a huge assault on voting rights, not just in deep red states, but in states that are kind of considered blue or purple, where, as you mentioned, Republicans have been able to take over because of these local and state races. How can local races protect us, protect our voting rights, and ensure that everyone has equal ballot access? So if you control more seats, right, I, I'm here in Chicago, Illinois, we have almost a supermajority, a, a Democrat-controlled uh, state legislature, hopefully a Democratic governor coming up this November. Uh, but we're very lucky to have that because we don't have the attacks on our on our inalienable right, our civil right to vote. Um, every state out there where you see these attacks have Republican majorities. Without Republican majorities, they cannot be successful with this. And one of the things that can also be done at the city council and at the county board level, you can pass local ordinances that make it more difficult. You can fight these things on a local case-by-case -case basis. It's the same with, for instance, minimum wage. Uh, labor and others are very interested in this. They want to make certain that uh, minimum wage is, uh, you know, there's, there's the fight the 15, I think, that SEIU uh, is, is leading. That, doesn't, that, that can be done at the state level, but can also be done in, you know, local city by city. And if you take over control of your local city council and pass 
um, you know, a Peoria, Illinois, or a Springfield, Missouri, or, um, you know, Great Bend, Kansas Minimum Wage Act, that's the law in your area. So you can have a real impact. And the same goes for voting rights. And uh, the same goes for uh, LGBTQ uh protection clauses and, and equal rights for, for everyone. That can be done at the local level. So that, I think, raises the issue of the Supreme Court. Right now, we're pretty likely, of course, I don't want this to happen, but I, I believe that it will happen. We will have a 5-4 conservative Supreme Court majority for the foreseeable future. Could you give us a few examples of how states can fight back to decisions by a conservative majority that would dismantle civil rights and liberties? Oh man, that is a tough question. And if I had the answer, I'd probably be pay being paid a lot more than I am right now. Um, elections have consequences. And we're seeing the consequences of November 2016 right now. I, I don't think we're going to be able to stop this Supreme Court appointment. Um, and it is a direct result of our inability to win last November. We cannot let that happen again. We have to, uh, there's a great quote, I think it's Winston Churchill that, you know, talking about a potential German invasion that we'll fight them in the, on the sea, we'll fight them on the beaches and on the land and in the air. We need to be the same way. We need to be fighting back against this, frankly, ridiculous, racist, hatred agenda. We need to be fighting it on the local level, the state level, the national level. And the Supreme Court, unfortunately, is a direct result of November. We can't allow that to happen again. The biggest concern with the Supreme Court, at least the most publicized, is Roe v. Wade. What can states do there? Look, at the local level, like I was talking about with the, with the minimum wage, you can pass ordinances at the local level. You can make, if you think about every clinic that wants to come into a state. Every state has their own rules, their own laws. It's a lot easier in Illinois than it is in Oklahoma, for instance. That's because the state legislature has placed rules upon, uh, they know they cannot overturn Roe v. Wade right away, but they can do ridiculous things like placing uh, you know, a three-day waiting period or a five-day waiting period. They can say after 10 weeks, you can't, uh, you no longer have the right to choose. Uh, these are ways that they chip away at it. But in addition, you know, I think it's Texas, uh, that they've placed some ridiculous constraints upon what an abortion clinic has to be built and what doctors are admitted and how close to a hospital that doctor has to have admittance privileges to, et cetera. These type of barriers to entry come directly through state legislatures, which is why we need more people stepping up to run. And, you know, if your town, if your town council is dominated by Republicans who don't want to allow a clinic like this in their area, they can very simply change the zoning rules. They can create technical issues and technical challenges that prevent a clinic from opening up. We can't allow that to happen anymore. So a lot of this really captures the importance of just building the grassroots enthusiasm that the Republican Party has so successfully maintained for so long. 
How do Democrats keep it going beyond 2018? How do they ensure that this stays a movement, that we don't repeat the same mistakes that happened under Obama's presidency? You know, we need to not only never forget about what has taken place since 2016 right now, right? And, and what the Trump presidency has done and means for our country. But beyond that, we can't forget the lesson about talking about issues that matter to voters. Democrats often, and I am guilty of this as well, we like to use logic and reasoning to appeal to people, right? If, if you think it through, it makes more sense to do X, Y, Z on an issue. And that's great if you're arguing in a debate. But when you're trying to appeal to individuals, you need to make you need to make emotional appeals. And one of the things that I think Republicans do very well is they create emotional appeals, personal emotional appeals to voters. Unfortunately, a lot of it is filled with fear and hatred, but those motivate people to vote and to act. Democrats need to counter that, not with more fear, not with more hatred, but with arguments that are emotionally based and then backed up by logic and rhetoric. We need to be appealing to people, not about how uh, being how about abortion should be legal because of X, Y, Z reasons on a legal sense, but making the argument out there of why it matters to them personally, talking about our personal experiences and empowering people, getting them fired up, getting them passionate and letting, you know, the beautiful thing about Obama was he was an amazing orator who could fire you up. Like, I, you know, you listen to him. I still... I have a five-year-old daughter. She had, she and I do fired up, ready to go all the time. Those type of things can get people motivated and moving, and we cannot lose sight of what that means for our country. So what can our listeners do right now as the midterms approach to get involved, to make sure that momentum stays? They can do, they can do one of, of three things, and I hope they will all do this. Uh, there are three ways to participate in our democracy. You can vote, you can volunteer, and you can give money. The fourth way, you can run. So if your state deadline hasn't passed and you are thinking about running, you want to learn more about running, come to traindemocrats.org. We have courses, we have uh, uh, resources to help walk you through. We want to lower the barrier of entry for anyone who's willing to step forward and run in their community. If you don't want to run, volunteer. Go find a campaign you care about. Give Even if it's just an hour, an hour of making phone calls or texting or knocking doors, whatever it is, give your time. If you can't give your time, find a campaign or a cause you care about and give. If it's $5, if it's $10, it doesn't matter how little or how much you give, but we need to come together and we need to, to support these causes. And how can folks support your organization? Uh, Traindemocrats.org. We are here to help anyone who wants to run or be involved on a campaign. You can come to our site. Uh, there, uh, you know, shameless plug, we provide everything for free to candidates, parties around the country because we are donor funded. If you uh, like our message, you like what we do, you like the idea of, uh, of empowering any Democrat who's willing to step forward and run, we would appreciate your financial support. You can sign up for our email list, our newsletter. If you're interested in running, like I said, all you got to do, traindemocrats.org and click get trained and you're, you're moving forward. 
Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We really appreciate it. Jordan, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. And we hope to have you on again. Now to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Support us through our Patreon. Check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.